If you have art that moves you, but doesn't move the world, it's great. I love art that's not political, but it's not artistic activism. everybody and welcome back to another episode of stuff we don't learn in school my name is jenny and i'm victoria and today we are joined by special guest stephen duncombe would you like to introduce yourself yes um thanks for having me jenny thanks for having me on victoria my name is stephen duncombe and i have two lives one of my life is that i'm a professor at new york university i'm professor of media and culture um, in both the Gallatin School and the Steinhardt Schools. And there I teach the history and politics of media and culture. And then my other life, I'm an activist. And I've been an activist since I was about your age, which is a long, long time ago now. And what I've been doing for the past 10 years or so is working with my partners, Steve Lambert and Rebecca Bray. We train artists and activists around the world. And we train artists to strategize a little bit more like activists and activists to create a little bit more like artists. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's a beautiful balance. And I feel like I don't know what the definition of artistic activism is. Like I can make an inference, right? I can assume give, what give it me, would give be. your inference. Art that focuses on topics related to activism, but then that makes me think, couldn't you interpret any art as activism in a way? Yes and no. I mean, all art has some sort of political function in mm -hmm. the world, even art that insists that it doesn't have a political function because for an art to say, I have no function in the world, of course, is a political act. And art oh for millennia, um, <laughs> has always represented a certain way of seeing the world. Often the ways of seeing the world are those in privilege, those people that get to commission the artists and pay for the art schools mm -hmm. and run the museums. But art has also been used by people for millennia as well to express their individual passions, but also their political aspirations. So you could argue that all art has some sort of political function. But what we're really interested in is we're interested in artists who are interested in having a real impact in the world. And we're interested in working with activists who want to use sort of creative or artistic methods and techniques and strategies in their activist work. Um, one of the ways to think about this is that the work that art does in the world is one of affect. Um, affect is that sort of emotional charge we get when we say that art moves us mm -hmm. you know when you see something uh, here a particularly beautiful song or a painting or something of that nature and it's even hard to describe to your best friend why you like it so much well yeah. that's the affective qualities of art um, it moves us whereas activism is really all about effect um, with an e and effect is really about um, material transformation the material change the material impact and so what we like to do is think about what is the combination of those two things? What is um, affective effect or effective affect? Mm -hmm. And because we get really confused, we came <laughs> with our own word called effect, which is the A and the E that like the Danish use. Oh. Um, and we kind of made up our own word. Yeah, the, I saw that word, in your yeah. description. I was like, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. Well, it's, it's a way to remind us that any good artistic activism has to move us emotionally and also has to move the world materially. Mm. And that these two things together are very powerful. Mm. 
If you have art that moves you, but doesn't move the world, it's great. I love art that's not political, but it's not artistic activism. Mm -hmm. If you have activism that actually transforms the world, but isn't necessarily moving us um, affectively, that's great too. I used to be a community organizer where I would literally knock on people's doors and ask them to sign petitions. That's excellent too. But if you can put the two things together, you can get a really powerful combination. Um, and people have been doing it for thousands of years. Yes, that that kind of reminds me, we just recorded a podcast on speech writing. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think that the best speeches bring together the three pillars, right? Pathos, logos, and ethos. Yes, Eric, you've been studying Aristotle, haven't you? <laughs> yes, uh, of course. Yeah, and so in a lot of ways, you know, what art is doing is is delivering the pathos, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and what uh, activism does is, you know, at its best, I guess it's someplace in between ethos and logos yes. as well. Um, but you do, you know, a great speech writer, a great uh, speech maker, someone like Martin Luther King, for example, you know, his, his speeches communicate a lot of information. And, but what they, they really do is they communicate that information in such a way that it actually touches us, moves us, wants to yes. get us involved. Yes. Um, he tells a story, right? And this is something that cognitive scientists have been really talking about in the past 20 years, is that how we make sense of facts isn't as we might imagine we make sense of facts. We don't like sit down and say, oh, this makes sense, and that makes sense. I'll put those two things, and I'll change my mind. If only. Um, yeah, I mean, if only, exactly. Um, we make sense of facts when they're in stories. Uh, we make sense of facts when they're in some sort of form that resonates with us. Yes. Um, and that's why, like, for example, storytelling as a form of artistic activism is so important. Yes. I wonder, for you, which one came first, the pathos or the logos ethos? Uh, well, it was a combination, actually. Um, so, but they weren't combined. So, I, as I said, I was an activist since I was very, very young. Mm. Um, but a lot of the activist work that I was organizing and I was doing um, was pretty traditional activism. Um, organize a rally, organize a march, um, set up a petition drive. And, you know, it was worthwhile work and it was worthy and it sometimes had impact, but it was also felt more like a chore than anything else. Um, it felt like I was eating my spinach yeah. um, and that, you know, activism was something you had to do, but didn't necessarily enjoy. But at the same time, I was living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and this is back in the 1980s, in which it's a was an incredibly vibrant cultural musical scene. Um, and I was in a series of punk rock bands. And that that part of my life was just filled with, you know, tons and tons of pathos. Um, yes. And it was really about trying to connect those two, the sort of the passion, the creativity, and the emotionality of the artwork I was doing, although my guitar playing could never be considered. <laughs> I'm sure then, you considered it. <laughs> with the sort of activist work that I was doing and bringing those two together was really something that inspired me. Is that something that you found in college or later on in uh, education? I found, it, I found it, it's hard to know when. I think definitely in college, I went to art school, mm -hmm. um, State University of New York at Purchase, mm -hmm. um, which is the state art school for New York. And so I was surrounded by artists all the time. I don't think I consciously put the two together at that moment. Um, 
But I very consciously after college put the two together because I started getting involved with ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. ACT UP was a social movement in the 1980s that was formed to protest government inaction around the AIDS crisis. Um, essentially, people with HIV were dying and it was being denied that they were dying by the, uh, the government. Pharmaceutical companies weren't really interested in developing any sort of vaccine because the population being affected by HIV and AIDS were primarily gay and or drug users. Um, and so ACT UP formed in the 1980s as a sort of, uh, as, a, as a way to draw attention to this. And what's interesting about ACT UP is that because of the peculiar demographic of the population that was hit so heavily by AIDS early on, which was gay men in urban centers, particularly New York and San Francisco, um, a lot of those men worked in the advertising industry and they worked in the arts industries. And so they brought that experience of design, advertising, and art into the activism they set themselves. And in fact, ACT UP was created by this fellow named Larry Kramer, who himself was a playwright. And so when I started going to these ACT UP protests, I realized there was a completely different way to do activism. It didn't have to feel like a chore. It didn't have to feel dreary. It could be exciting and it could be vibrant and it could be colorful and it could be fabulous. Well, I've, I've noticed as I read a little bit of your bio that you've kind of traveled the world in spreading information on art activism and just activism in general. I want to know if there is a difference in the perception towards art and activism and that kind of melding between the two, the intersectionality between the two around the world, or if people are a little bit more timid or they feel more passionate about activism and don't want that kind of vibrant, beautiful, colorful activism that you saw in the 80s? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One, I, I wouldn't say I spread information um, because that's definitely not the model that I use. Um, what okay. I like to do is work with activists and mm. work with artists in workshop settings where we're actually working together and we're yeah. working on joint projects. So yes, I do do lectures. Because lectures pay pretty well, <laughs> uh, but it's my least favorite way of actually interacting with folks. So most of the work we do is actually in workshops where we actually work with activists. And at the end of the workshop, we create some sort of action together, some sort of creative action. Together. Mm -hmm in 24 hours. But to get back to your um, original question about the differences around the world, there's definitely regional differences. In the United States and in Europe, there's a much bigger separation between arts and activism traditionally. Oh. Uh, particularly artists get squirrely about someone telling them what to do with their art. Um, and that they really think of the art as sort of their individual creation and mm. as a personal expression. Whereas when we do work in Africa, and we do a fair amount of work in Africa and some in Latin America, those borderlines between arts and activism are really blurred. And in fact, folks in Africa and Latin America have been doing artistic activism, for lack of a better term, for a long, long time. Yes. So, you know, a lot of what we learn, we actually learn from the global south as opposed from the, from the north. What would you say was your favorite trip or moment or seeing of the melding of the two or working with a particular group of activists throughout your time? There's so many of them, but the one I'm thinking about right now is when we were did a workshop 
with LGBTQ and Roma rights activists in what's now called North Macedonia, which is in the Western Balkans. And at that time, I think it was 2014 or 2015, the Macedonian government was a right-wing nationalist government, and it was very, very hostile to queer folks and Roma folks. I mean, really hostile. The, the activists we were working with had just had their community center firebombed about two months beforehand. And Macedonia was at that time rated the second worst place to be queer in Europe, right after Russia. So it was, they felt really, really embattled. Mm-hmm. And we did our workshop, um, had a, you know, had a great time. They're amazing activists and artists and so on. And we got to the end of our workshop. And um, what we do at the end of our workshops is within 24 hours, we brainstorm, build all the props and execute a active or artistic activist intervention. And then we reflect upon it, what worked, what didn't, what could go better and so on and so forth. The whole point of doing it in 24 hours is never going to work out completely well. But it's a, it's a way we can learn together. We used to not do this. We used to just leave after four days. And we never had the chance to actually work with people and put all these lessons into action. So we started to do this. And this was one of the first times we actually worked with these folks um, and actually built something. Um, these people felt very alienated from their society. And so the first, when we, the first go around of, well, what do we want to do? A lot of it was they were really pissed. And they wanted to show people how pissed they were, that they were being excluded from the society, their own country. And so their first inclination was to do something that was really angry. You know, essentially, they wanted to give the proverbial finger to the Macedonian government. Well, if you don't like us, well, fuck you. We don't like you. We talked about that. And we talked about that that would probably feel pretty good to do something like that. It probably would get a lot of media attention, but in a way it would play into the narrative that the nationalist government was spinning about queer folks in Roma, that they didn't belong, that they were outsiders. And so we went back to the drawing board and brainstormed some other ideas. And the idea we finally settled upon was that instead of saying no to the Macedonia we didn't like, we were going to build the Macedonia we did like. And so what we did is we created something called the Future Republic of the Former Republic of Macedonia. And let me explain that name. Macedonia was not allowed to call itself Macedonia in the United Nations. They had to be called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia because the Greeks, who also claim Macedonia, wouldn't allow them to call themselves Macedonia. (laughs) So now they're called North Macedonia. Everything's okay. okay. But at that time, they had to call themselves the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which, um, and everybody hated to call that. So we kind of played on that joke that we would be the future republic of the former republic of Macedonia. It really just rolls and, off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we made our own passports. Um, and in these passports, when it got to the gender part, there wasn't male, female, but instead there was a scatter plot, and you could kind of, uh, figure out where to put yourself on that scatter plot, but do it in pencil so you could erase it and then put something else in if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. We made a frontier, um, like a border gate, where as you entered into this new republic, we got a border guard, she'd blow a whistle and everybody would clap. Um, there was musicians, there was balloons, there was big banners up over park benches that said, come talk to your you know, queer Macedonian neighbors, come talk to your Roma Macedonian neighbors. 
And then at the center of it all were these statue bases. And what the nationalist government had done in Macedonia is they had spent all this public money on creating these huge statues to mythic Macedonian heroes. And they were all big busted women and men with big forearms and all sorts of, you know, mm. you can imagine what they yes. were like, okay? But what we wanted to create is we wanted to create a place where everyday Macedonians could declare themselves heroes and heroines. And so people would stand up on this platform, they would have this sign that said hero and heroine, and they would write in teacher, lover, or their names or something like that, and they'd have their picture taken and everybody would clap. And over the course of a couple of hours, about 500 people came. And yes, the usual sort of activist suspects, but actually the majority of the people were just people strolling through the park that day. Um, they were kids, they were teenagers, they were elderly people, all who pledged allegiance to a queer in Roma, Macedonia, uh, the future republic, the former republic of Macedonia. It was the most successful um, demonstration or protest of marginalized peoples in Macedonia for that 10 years. Um, and it really taught me something about that this idea of protest or demonstration, we use those words synonymously, but it's important to think that demonstration is a particular meaning. And this works in Spanish too, because the name is manifestacion, which is, it means to demonstrate, okay, go out, you know, march, hold up signs and so on and so forth. But it also should mean to demonstrate. What sort of world do we want to demonstrate to the audience? What sort of how do we demonstrate our politics on the street? And often the demonstrations we have demonstrate a model of being and, you know, that is completely opposite of the world that we wanted to bring into being. And what's wonderful about these folks is they found out a way to demonstrate the world that they wanted to bring into being through their demonstration. And so that was something, you know, I learned at that moment from them and it's really stuck with me. Yeah, I love that. I think your point about having the demonstration show the world you want to live in as opposed to just like critiquing or vilifying or mm. uh, bringing to light the truth that already exists right now uh, is a cool message of hope. I think if some of our current demonstrations like shifted towards that, I think I'd be really interested to see what it looks like. Yes. And within your work, you were talking about how like you created passports and had banners and a lot of it was multifaceted and art appeared in different aspects. And with the merging of the two, how do you measure impact? Because I know when you're in the activism space, it, it might be easier in terms of quantifying and measuring the number of people who maybe sign a petition. But yeah, where do you get your success outcomes? And I think ultimately, what is your vision and what do you hope to uh, build and transform the world into? That is a great, great question. Because um, I, I think the potential weakness of something like artistic activism is Super cool, super fun, super flashy, makes for great media, it's, it's cutting edge, it's hip, and so on and so forth. But if it actually doesn't change society, then I'd rather be doing what I was doing when I was 18 and walking around the neighborhood, knocking on people's doors and getting a petition. Because in the end, it's really about changing the world. It's not just about expressing whatever I feel I want to be expressing. And so the question is, well, how do you measure it? Sometimes you do measure with uh, old-fashioned metrics, like literally, we knew that 500 people yeah. came because we gave out five, we have 500 passports, and so we could get a clear metric of, oh, this is more successful than that because yeah. we gave out those 500. 
But it is, on the other hand, harder to measure what may be the most important aspect of, say, that particular artistic actress action, which was people get a glimpse of a new world. Was their consciousness changed? Do they imagine that they could actually transform society into a world that they loved as opposed to just tolerated or hated? Mm. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we've done a lot of work in North Macedonia. Um, we keep going back and we've worked, we've worked with some of the most talented uh, artistic activists we've ever worked with who also um, are stationed in North Macedonia, are locals from North Macedonia. And what happened, that was 2014, 2015, about three or four years later, people rose up, got into the streets, and at their forefront were artists who splashed all of the buildings with bright colors. And it was called the Colorful Revolution, and they brought down this nationalist government, and they issued in um, the government they have now, which is not the best government in the world, but it's not you know, it's not homophobic, it's not anti-Roma, they're not spending public monies on crazy and corrupt building projects. And so can't say there's a connection between our little utopia, um, but I think we had a, a little bit, we, we added a little spark to what yeah. would then, you know, yes. as Chairman Mao said, only takes a spark. Yeah. They had anybody quote Chairman Mao on here. <laughs> <laughs> I did not accept that, that's for sure. But I mean... Despite, you know, the source, the words ring true. I think I actually think that Mao it was a tradition it's a traditional Chinese saying that Mao kind of Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> probably. probably safe. I think uh I think the idea of measuring impact will always be interesting, especially as we're shifting to more digital spaces or at least more content based things, like mm. for example, Instagram infographics. Like how much does that translate into change or like signing petitions and what's the almost like turnover rate? Mm -hmm. And at SWDLS, we're thinking of like, you know, well, how do we measure whether we open someone's mind? And like you said, had that shift in consciousness or at least push them in one step to the right direction of seeking out information and learning and curiosity and all of those like very grand romantic ideas. <laughs> so it's, it's always interesting. And I think um, someone told me this one anecdote, and I'm not sure, I couldn't find it on the internet, so I'm not sure if it's accurate, but it was the idea of this local weather station ran this experiment where every time after they reported the nightly weather thing or, or they explained the weather, they'd add something about climate change. Just very brief, just one sentence, and they'd keep doing it. And then uh, finally, I think the results showed that the people living in that region who watched the news started to slowly you know, move towards the needle of believing in climate change and pushing for uh, more action, which I thought was interesting. And I think that is the power of media and art and all of yeah. these intersections. And, and I think that actually makes sense. I mean, part of how politics works is it's what we constitute as common sense. Yeah. And that, you know, we think of politics sometimes as elections and elections are important, mm. but where real politics comes in, um, lasting politics comes in, is a fundamental shifting of what makes sense to us, um, what we can imagine for ourselves and what we also say is unimaginable. Right. Um, and you know that uh, the quote I sent you from Audre Lorde. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're going to be repeating this at the end, but uh, the quote is, right now I could name at least 10 ideas I would have found intolerable or incomprehensible and frightening, except as they came after dreams and poems. Yes. So Audre Lorde is an amazing poet, but she actually wrote that an essay about poetry and why art is so important. And what she was trying to say is that 
thinking about a new world is fundamentally scary. Uh, we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the consciousness to imagine a world that isn't the world we have now. And so what art can do is can give us those words, if it's poetry, yeah. give us those images. Or Victoria, in your example, just give us that little nudge at the end of the newscast that says that climate change is supposed to be something we should be thinking about in terms of the weather. And that slowly shifts our consciousness. Um, now, I am a, a social scientist, and so I'm actually really interested in measuring impact um, in all sorts of ways. And I'm not, while I agree that, you know, we can't, how can you ever measure the shift in consciousness? I think we can kind of try. And so I'll tell you about this really fun experiment that I did with a colleague of mine named Silas Harabad from Denmark. And what we did is we ran an experiment on the most traveled bridge in Denmark and Copenhagen. Everybody walks around in the spring and everybody rides their bicycles. Mm. And there's this one bridge that goes over these man-made lakes or human-made lakes. And there's just tons and tons of people streaming over it and sitting down, drinking beer, having fun. And we said, okay, what we're going to do is over the course of three days, we are going to do six activist interventions and they're going to be paired. On the first day, it's going to be about making a speech. On the second day, it's going to be about getting petitions. And the third day, it's going to be handing out pamphlets. And But for each day, we're going to pair a creative way of doing this and a traditional way of doing this. And so the issue we picked was um, about attacks on meat, which was being debated in the Danish parliament at that time, because cows actually contribute to huge amounts of methane gas, which are terrible for the ozone layer mm. and so on. Um, and so we wanted to pick some, you know, kind of wonky issue that people did, weren't really passionate about. I mean, Denmark is not Texas, you know? It's not like they're really committed to their cows and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and because we wanted to be able to measure our, our activist interventions, not people's predisposed attitudes towards something or another. Yes. So in any case, the first day, what we did is we had someone give a traditional political speech, but that person was a rapper. And so for the second time they did it, what we did is that they rapped the same facts, oh but in a rap. And it was, yes. their rapper says a pretty good rap, right? Mm -hmm. And we had a bunch of students and the students noticed how many people stopped, how many people took pictures. And then they would go up to people as they left and they would do these two minute spot interviews oh. um, and take down the contact details. Mm. The second day, which was about petitions, started out by just, I, I'm such and such, you know, can, will you sign my petition on this issue? Then the second part of that was we had the same petition, but with this huge sound system on a bike, because they have those in Denmark. And we loaded in a soundtrack of cows farting. Oh um, my God. And it was really, really loud. <laughs> like the whole bridge, you could hear the sound. <laughs> farting. And Danes are particularly scatological, so they loved it. And then we had <laughs> in cow costumes with... Ask me why I fart or something of that. No, I fart and it's a problem um, on their on their chest. Go up and ask people to sign the petitions. And we did the same thing. We watched people. We interviewed people. We got their contact details. The third day, this was the, the pamphlets. We had two sets of pamphlets. One was really fact-based. The other was much more colorful, much more provocative. 
It was my shit is an issue or something like that. We had the same people dressed up as cows versus regular folks. Mm -hmm. um, we had the same farting sound system, but we also created a minefield. We went out that morning and dug up cow shit. <laughs> and they, this minefield of cow shit with little protest signs. Oh my like, gosh. You know, my shit is an issue. And people had to kind of Go like, look it. down and pick their way by and slow down while we handed, uh, handed out pamphlets. Yeah. And um, then what we did is um, we counted up, we observed, we counted how many petitions got signed in, with each technique, how many pamphlets got set, um, given out within a set time period. Um, and then we we contacted people two weeks later to see how much they remembered yeah. about the issue, whether they'd taken any action on the issue and so on. And what we found out is, lo and behold, um, these creative approaches with very limited objectives, like how many pamphlets you can hand out, how much you remembered from a speech, uh, how many signatures you could get, were far more effective. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is when we interviewed people, it's not just that people enjoyed and were surprised by the creative approaches is that they really didn't like traditional activism. Yeah. Um, they found petitioners annoying. <laughs> they found people to handing out pamphlets. They wanted to get away from them. And so if you could break those stereotypes by having someone dressed as a cow, for example, <laughs> a farting soundtrack, it created that sort of element of surprise, which good art often does, like avant-garde art does, is it breaks our expectations. And in that moment of surprise, people were open to hear a political message. Mm. Um, and so we wrote up an article on that. And uh, so it's the first ever social experiment of creative versus non-creative forms of activism. That's that's an amazing idea. I would love to replicate that on a smaller scale <laughs> and maybe, maybe a different issue. Uh, yeah. And something we want to get your thoughts on, sure. which I've always thought was interesting, but I never knew where the line was, or if there even was a line, was mm -hmm. with art, I think sometimes there comes like vanity with it, whether you, you want to make the art for whatever purpose. And then with activism, there's a lot of power grabbing, I think, within yeah. the space. And then you merge the two. And <laughs> <laughs> you merge the two and some of it, I don't know, can be maybe performative or I don't know what the right word is. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, How do you <laughs> that's actually a great point. And the worst <laughs> of both worlds. Um, <laughs> we have this term called political expressionism. You know, like there's an abstract expressionism like Jackson Pollock. Yeah. An artist will like splash paint there to show yeah. how angry <laughs> he was. And, you know, and we have, we have this kind of critique, which we call political expressionism, which is the, you know, the creative artist who goes out and just creates this big thing because it says something about me and how angry I am and look at me and I'm so angry about this issue. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what's missing in all of that is, does it change the world, mm. right? And this is the critique I have of most political art, which is, is it art about politics or is it art that works politically? And I think oh. that most political art is art about politics, just like it could be about a bowl of fruit for all that matter, right? But it's not necessarily art that works politically. Right. And you can have ostensibly apolitical art that is, does not have politics as its subject matter, but it still have a profound political impact. Yeah. And so for me, it's always about how does this work politically? And that sort of egocentric, <laughs> you know, look at me, power grab, that to me is really not about changing the world. That's really about the artist or the activist. And unfortunately, you see a lot amongst young activists because part of one of the things that young activists, and I'm guilty of this too back when I was young too, um, is that you're trying to figure out your identity. And part of your identity is I'm woke. 
<laughs> I, mean, I am, you know, I am holier than thou. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which is understandable, but then you have to ask yourself, is this posture helping the cause or hurting the cause? Yeah. Is my inability to talk to anybody helping the cause or hurting the cause? Because in the end, it's about the cause. It's about, you know, are you actually decreasing racial violence? Mm -hmm. And if you have to wear a suit and a tie and, you know, use banal and uncontroversial language, but you can actually measure that you are decreasing police violence, then I'll wear the suit and tie and I will use that sort of banal, you know, uh, middle of the road political speech. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean that radicalism doesn't work. Radicalism can work. I mean, if you look at things like the Black Panther Party, at that moment, that sort of radicalism was exactly what was needed mm -hmm. as we transitioned out of the civil rights movement into the, into the Black Power movement. But again, the Black Panther Party was really, really smart about when did it work and when did it not work? Sometimes the militancy worked, but they were also very careful to do things like the breakfast programs which actually brought real tangible results to their communities as a way to balance out that militancy and that upfront in your mm -hmm. face. Um, again, it's not about judging whether it's better to, you know, wear a leather jacket or wear a, a, a suit and a tie. It's about given this context, given this political struggle, what is the most effective way to yeah. get change? And I think for me personally, my only exposure to activism has really just been through social media, right? Like as a Gen Zer yeah. on the internet with the with the woke teens, as you would say. Um, my only exposure is through these infographics online, and I haven't really been exposed to artistic activism within my high school, or really just art or humanities yeah. much in general, which is a very big shame. And I think that says a lot about society, but that's a different topic and conversation in and of itself. But you said, you told me in the emails that we exchanged that you're currently in the midst of developing a high school art curriculum. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so again, it goes back to this idea of how can you have the greatest impact? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've been doing these training workshops around the world, which are great. Um, we're now training other people to train other people. And so we have a team both in West Africa that we've been working with and in Western Balkans who then go and train other teams and so on and so forth. Um, but still, we're reaching 100 people, 200 people, 300 people, maybe 1,000 people over the course of 10 years. And so I was interested in like, well, how do we get the biggest bang for you know our effort? And I have a colleague here at Dipti Desai um, and she works in the arts and education program. And one of the things that her students do is they design curriculum. And so we're sitting together and she's very interested in arts and activism. We're like, why don't we design a high school curriculum? Yeah. High school teachers are way overburdened. Um, they're always looking for a curriculum because they just don't have any time and they have so much work to do and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so we figured what we do is we develop um, a curriculum for high school art teachers or civics teachers in which they could sort of teach units on artistic activism, um, the history of artistic activism, cultural theory and aesthetic theory through artistic activism, different global practices of artistic activism. And then, of course, 
how to actually do it and how to practice it. Um, and we've done some work in high schools and public schools in New York City. And I love working with young people. I mean, I love working with college students, but I also really like high school. I have two high schoolers at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if we can get a curriculum being used by high school teachers, then we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yes. and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who, when they want to, as young people are often want to do, you know, be passionate about an idea, yet also have a set of tools that they can use, that they can put these two together and have more impact. Because often what happens is that the activists and the artists split in high school, um, yeah. or the artists make art about politics, or yes. your activist friends say, hey, can you make a nice looking flyer? Um, or can you sing a song at our rally? But we're much more interested in what happens when you create a rally using an aesthetic and artistic mindset. And so the rally itself looks like a performance. Um, but that has to start young. And I think high yeah. school is actually a great place to do it. So that's something I'm going to be working on with Dipti Desai over the next uh, six months or a year. I love that. Hey, whenever you finish that, I have a couple teacher friends that Good. I'm sure would love to implement that within their Great. curriculum. Well, I will, I will take you up on that offer. Perfect. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Expanding I'm super to the Pittsburgh area. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm super excited for that. I know I took art history last year and that was interesting because I've never considered art in the context of how like religion or government and all of that influences it, but I'd love to learn more. And I'm sure a lot of other people too would love to learn more about just like the things that they don't realize all around them art. is like within art. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of art and then they think of just royal p portraits. Right. Well, like dead white dudes. Yes. Right. Dead uh, white people who could afford to get their yeah. painters paid in. For exactly. Um, yeah. And that's the problem is, again, that's uh, this idea of that art is something separate from everyday life. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure you all listen to music. Yeah. I'm sure you, you know, watch TikTok videos. <laughs> um, you know, that's art. Yeah. You know, it, it's a creative expression of an idea or set of ideas. And so all of us are artists. And we start with the premise that art is not something special. It's not something that artists do. It's something that we all do. We're all creators in some way or another. It's just tapping into that creativity and bringing that to your activist self and we are all activists okay mm -hmm. insofar as you organize a trip with your friends to go do x y and z that's what activism is okay yeah. you're getting something done you figured out how to put your homework together in such a way as that you actually get it done by friday or you get it done by monday that's a form of activism it's just that we separate out and these artists and activists and we put them on pedestals and say they are special people and often artists and activists um, contribute to that idea of separation. And we're really into bringing all that down from the pedestal, mashing it up um, and making it part of everyday life. Yeah, both spaces are maybe like inadvertently inaccessible or you feel like you have to have the it factor to do it mm -hmm. or, or to, to, yeah. to be that type of person. So I think breaking down those barriers really change a lot of the a lot of the stuff we're seeing now especially implementing it within curriculum within high school curriculum or elementary school curriculum and starting young and making people realize that difference because i i before going into this conversation i never differentiated art about politics versus art 
with political intentions. There's a very big difference yeah. in the impact, especially on it. I want to know, you know, talking about the future, about the future project of creating educational curriculum with um, artic artistic activism. If there's anything else about the future of art and activism that you envision. I think, you know, when we set out 10 years ago, when we created the Center for Artistic Activism, oddly, it was an outdoor bar in the Netherlands. <laughs> and we wrote everything on napkins, really. But we said, well, how will we know if we're successful? And we said, well, we'll know we're successful when your run-of-the-mill activist group will sit down and plan a campaign and they'll say, well, what's our legal strategy? What's our electoral strategy? What's our mass mobilization strategy? And what's our creative strategy? And 10 years later, that's pretty much happened. Didn't have to do with just us, okay? That is, is that there's lots of people like us doing lots and lots of stuff. And as I said before, you know, creative forms of activism have been part of activism for millennia. Mm. But there's an increased recognition that in order to succeed in today's political landscape, a landscape which is highly mediated, as you said, mm. a lot of your experience comes online, which is built around spectacles um, and stories. I mean, our passing president, um, he was a master at manipulating story and spectacle. That if we're gonna succeed on this political terrain, we have to learn how to be creative in our activism. And I think that's happening. And so I'm very impressed by types of activism I'm seeing young folks do, or even older folks who I'm seeing around the world, in which creativity seems to be part of you know, the activist tool set. Yes. Yeah, I think especially in what people call like the post-truth era, where, you know, like you said, facts mm -hmm. no longer triumph feeling and your identity and your core values are more or are more of a reflection of what you believe than what's actually true. Uh, yeah. Implementing that creativity to add that shock value or add that affect, like we talked about, the emotional appeal can hopefully slowly push everyone in the right direction, maybe just different forms of creativity and activism and what sure. and looking different for different people. Yeah. Sure. But, and we have to be careful, too, mm -hmm. because... As I like to remind people, the most effective artistic activists in the past hundred years were not on the sides of peace and justice and racial equality. They were the Nazi party. Yeah. Um, and that the right-wing nationalism and bigots and white supremacists are actually masters at using emotion yeah. and using signs and symbols. Um, they said President Trump was a real master at how to manipulate emotions and stories and spectacle. Um, but there's, you know, either one, you run away from that, um, or two, you say, look, for those of us who are interested in truth and those of us who are interested in justice, we've got to figure out how to do it as well, but how to do it ethically. Um, it's easy to motivate people through fear. Um, yeah. Is that ethical? Do we want a society based on fear as a society that we're demonstrating um, to bring into being? No, I don't want that. And so our job's a little bit harder insofar as that we need to create ethical spectacles, but it's still absolutely essential because if we don't learn how to compete on this political terrain, then we'll become irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, I think with that, where should our audience check out more information on the Center of Artistic Activism? www.c4aa.org or just Google Center for Artistic Activism, or just Artistic Activism, mm -hmm. and we'll 
come to the top. Um, and there's lots and lots of resources on that site. Um, so dig around. Everything is Creative Commons licensed, so it's free to use, um, free to share, free to mash up and mangle and reuse. Our point is to get people using stuff. Um, yes. And so please visit, please use. If you're interested in case studies of creative activism and artistic activism, we also have created an archive, a user-generated archive that has like 2,500 different case studies of artistic activism. Oh my gosh. By medium, by issue, and by region. Most of it's in English, there's some in Spanish, some in Chinese, some in Arabic, but most of it's in English mm -hmm. um, because it's user-generated. People yeah. are uploading stuff. But if you're ever in want of inspiration or you're doing research for a school project, um, go to actopedia.org mm -hmm. and you can check out all the stuff there as well. Yeah. And right after you check out those things, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> the website's stuffwedontlearninschool.org. Just plug in your email and you will automatically get the bi-weekly newsletters and follow us on our Instagram, which is at stuffwedontlearninschool. And our ending quote of the podcast, I'll just repeat it if you missed it in the middle of the podcast there. As we said before, it's from the poet Audre Lorde, but it's from an essay that's called Poetry is Not a Luxury. And the quote goes, Right now, I could name at least 10 ideas I would have found intolerable or incomprehensible and frightening, except as they came after dreams and poems. As always, stuff we don't learn in school would not be possible without our team. Thank you to Samantha Podner for writing the newsletter, Sophie Liu for the resource, Emma Scott for the digital content, and Gloria Wong for the graphic design.